Good morning. Let me greet each one in Christ's name this morning. It's been good to be here and sit in your Sunday school class and hear a lot of good discussion. And I've been blessed. <clears throat> this morning for a message, I've titled this message, uh, Why I Do This. And I also have down here uh, another rendering of this title. That you could put one word in here and it completely changes the context of this title. It says, why do I do this? I read a quote recently that said, biblical Christianity is not popular. Popular, popular Christianity is not biblical. A while back, I, I preached this message at our home church, and right before that, I talked to a friend of mine from Tennessee, and he was telling me how him and his wife went uh, to Europe on an Anabaptist tour, and I think it was maybe one or two couples of their friends that joined them in this tour, and otherwise, they joined up with a group of 20 that they didn't know. It was just them and their friends, and then they... They got in this group with these other people, and I don't know what all they anticipated uh, when they thought about going with this group, but obviously all of them in this group were going to study their roots, Anabaptist history and all the things that go with it. And one of the big surprises that my friend and his wife and his friends had when they got into this tour was the people that were going along with them to visit Anabaptist history, how different their views were, uh, between my friend and his wife and these other people. In fact, one of the couples that were on this trip was transgender or some, some kind of alternate lifestyle. And so they had to take this trip with these people. And I, I think they probably anticipated being on a, a journey with, through history with people that they could align and values and, and think about shared history and all of this. And, and this was a real jolt to them. And I think we can identify with how that would be. And there was one man in particular that um, they got into discussion with different times. And he, he said that in their discussions, they agreed on almost nothing. This man told my friend, he said, uh, the God of the Old Testament is not the God I know. He said, I think we should somehow figure out how to remove the Old Testament from the Bible, something like that. He said, my God would never send someone to hell. This was a man that was traveling over to visit Anabaptist history, who identified with the Anabaptists. So my question is, does that change God because of this viewpoint? No. We know that in spite of whatever reality that they wanted to embrace, it doesn't change God, it doesn't change truth. A while back, I was traveling somewhere, and I was in an airport, sitting in the terminal waiting on my flight, and I was just, you know how it is when you're, you're kind of half bored, and you're waiting on something, and I observed some boys walking down the same, towards me in this terminal, and I thought I recognized these young men. I uh, didn't really know them, but I knew them enough to know that I think I know their parents. And so I stayed sitting for a while, and I watched these boys. They went over, 
They sat across the aisle in the other section of booths there waiting on a flight, and I, I observed that they sat down, and after a while they pulled out their phones, and they started to occupy themselves on their phones. And so after a little bit, I got up and started walking around the terminal, and I finally walked around and came up in front of them and said hi. And of course I had the advantage because they didn't know me and I knew where they belonged. And so we talked a little bit and then I said, uh, I said, yeah, tell your dad hi for me. And so the one boy said, sure. He reached in his pocket, he pulled out another phone and he texted his father and said hi for me. So I'm not going to necessarily go to all the dimensions of why he did that or what was going on there. But I just want to think about this statement, why I do this. And I think probably too often in our circles, there's too many times that I want to say, why do I do this? Instead of making a statement, why I do this. You know, the definition of truth is not dependent on our experience. This man that went on this tour that would like to remove the Old Testament from the Bible, uh, regardless of how he experienced God, didn't change God. It doesn't change truth. Truth is still truth, no matter how what his experience included. Truth has never been accurately defined by experience unless experience and interpretation first lines up with truth. Many people in churches today want to use truth to wrap around their lifestyle and somehow make it look right. Justify what they want and make it look scriptural. Biblical Christianity is not popular. Why I do this. So why are you here? I think for us today, it's probably too often we don't make that statement and we don't define ourselves like we should. Why I do this. Instead, too often... I get in my frustration with something. I say, why do I do this? Can you evaluate this question accurately? As you think about why you do this, your life, and what, what makes you who you are, the reality that you are living out today, can you really tell someone why you do this? Or is it just a lifestyle that you grew up with and it feels secure? Somehow I just feel comfortable in who I am. It's where mom and dad raised me. Or maybe I'm here because I reacted to mom and dad's culture and I didn't like what I had been and so now I'm something different. Or are you doing it because I, you feel strongly about biblical values and principles that you truly have convictions for and that's why you do this. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. David read that chapter and I'm going to pull some things out of this chapter. He read it for us, and I wasn't planning to read the whole chapter, so it's good that he gave us an uh, introduction to this chapter. But I want to look here at 1 Peter chapter 1 and pull some verses out of here and look at who Peter was writing to and, and the way he describes the Christian life and how they fit into this and what can we learn from that. 1 Peter chapter 1, and I want to start reading here at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto, sal unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, so now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. We're going to stop there for a little bit. So Peter here is writing to a church culture that is being persecuted, uh, maybe in different ways, but through affliction and trials and being not popular to their local culture. They were not popular. They were being persecuted. And they, their, their way of life was not something that their neighbors would condone. And that's not the climate that you and I live in today. Our society is very tolerant and polluted. And it's more focused on being who they want to be than paying attention to who we are, probably at this point. That could change. But we don't face these trials like they did here in the book of Peter. But what is Peter telling them? Jesus Christ, who has begotten you again unto a lively hope by the resurrection from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible that we can look forward to, a fulfilling of that, kept by the power of God through faith, wherein ye greatly rejoice in spite of these heavy trials and temptations, in spite of these afflictions and these things that were happening, he, ex he had an expectation for these people to live joyfully with Jesus Christ, who had raised him from the dead. Spiritual death. How is it that this culture could rejoice in spite of this this culture around them that was persecuting them and, and finding fault with them. Well, let's go to verse 22 of 1 Peter here, 1 Peter 1, verse 22. It says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And this testimony here in verse 22 is a direct result of the beginning of this chapter when these people found themselves in this lively hope and the purification came through obedience to the word of God. Verse 22, seeing ye have purified your souls in what? In obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Purifying your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Now notice that as you read down through this verse, the first comma in this verse is at the end of brethren. And oftentimes when I read this and we read this verse, we kind of split it up in chunks because it's, it's sort of a long thought. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. This all goes together as we think about the purification of our lives in obedience. And I see that as we come to Christ, we have this lively hope, and we, we start to obey God in a, in a new walk with Him, in a relationship with Him, and a purification process starts to happen in our life. And we grow from one victory to another victory. And oftentimes we think of growth, we don't necessarily put purification and growth together. But it is a purifying process as we obey the truth from one truth to the next. As we grow and mature, there's a purifying process there. And it includes love of the brethren. So this church here, these people, 
were not popular with their culture. But let's go over here to chapter 2, verse 9. It says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now this is a tremendous testimony of people of faith. A direct result of chapter 1. Finding this lively hope, a relationship with God, a purification through obedience to truth, and applying that truth in spite of what was going on around them, they kept their focus on truth. They, they continued to obey one step at a time, and this is the testimony of these people. Purification through obedience. This was not popular Christianity. This Christianity is not about, about being popular. It's about truth and obedience. Very simple facts of the Christian life. Truth and obedience. It's about finding peace and security through obedience and faith. Not picking my lifestyle and then taking truth and wrapping it around. So, if I, if I am capable of taking a look at myself, if you are able to take a look at yourself and honestly evaluate who are you? Why do you do what you do? One way for me to find that out, for you to find that out, would be to remove myself from my culture, my peers, my parents, those who I'm the most familiar with, my family, and live in a place and an environment that is completely foreign to me. Then, after a time, evaluate who I am. How obedient and consistent am I, really, to Bible truth? There's a book written, and the title is The Price of Privilege by Madeleine Levine. And this lady is a psychologist, and she's been working with adolescents and teenagers for probably 40 years, maybe more. And she writes this book and to uh, exp give some of her knowledge in working with adolescents and the things that she sees in our nation. And one of the things that she noticed was the, the adolescents and teenagers that would come into her office for help. And she was surprised at the results and the, the mindset of these youth and where they were coming from. One girl, I think, walked into her office and she had empty embossed on her arm, I think, with a tattoo or something. And she saw in these adolescents a lot of bad habits and a lot of bad things coming from their life that you would expect from the, the more poverty-stricken areas in our nation. But instead, these youth, in having these, these bad habits and these things, that their, life were, their lives were floundering and they were, they were just really uh, struggling. These youth were coming from blue-collar, successful homes in our nation. And so in this book, she explains her opinion on how parental pressure and material advantage and creating a generation of just driving to achieve and having all of these things accessible to them was creating a culture of 
of lost adolescents. Unhappy youth that were disconnected. And this book is written purely from a secular standpoint, not a Christian perspective. But what can we as conservative Christians in our in living out truth in this culture, in this nation, in this national culture, what, what do we need to reckon with as we think about the affluent age and the challenges that come with it? I believe there's some things we need to recognize that are challenges to us because of the, the national culture that we live in that are unique to us. And one is that this culture of affluence uh, creates and trends towards dissatisfaction. It also trends towards being unthankful. It creates an attitude or can create an attitude of entitlement that somehow I deserve this. We talked about that in Sunday school class this morning. Uh, one, of the, one of you said that when we, are, when, we, when we are nothing, we're not easily offended, something like that. And in, a, in, a, in an environment that we live in today where we have so much, it can create this entitlement attitude that you know, I just can't get enough. I just, I deserve this, and I deserve this, and oh yeah, there's something else over here that I deserve. So it creates a, a generation of unfulfillment with normal life, a need for more, always something more. Now, it doesn't have to be that way here in our midst, in our families, but this is the trend of our nation, and it's going to take deliberate steps on our part if we don't want to trend with that. Does it mean it's impossible to live an applicable life in an affluent culture? Jesus said it's difficult for a rich man to enter heaven, and he warns about the love of money, and that thought expanded into the love that we can have for a culture that we live in today. We can be very comfortable. We can like all the niceties and all the things that come with it, the frills and the ability to just satisfy ourselves with all these things. We have that ability the danger of allowing affluence to be our identity. You know, in the New Testament, there were wealthy people who were a blessing to the kingdom, to the early church. And I believe that unless we're willing to take what we have in this culture and, and lay it before God and let it serve the kingdom, it will serve ourselves. It'll serve us, one or the other. We need to allow our lives and our assets to be used to build the kingdom. And these are challenges that we must reckon with to be successful in God's kingdom as we think about this question, why I do this, or why do I do this? You know, for, for you and I here in our background, we have probably about 400 years of culture that we are a product of. And that's done a lot to shape our reality of who we really are. You know, where we live, how we think, the decisions we make are influenced by the culture that we grew up in. And I think there's at least three categories in our Mennonite circles here in the United States, and you can probably add to this, and this is not a blanket statement, but I think I have seen all of these in our circles. And number one is, we are here because we were born and raised 
in this church culture and are comfortable and love the lifestyle and like the ease of second and third generation living. Or number two, we are here because we didn't like something else. And we know more about what we did, don't like from our past and what we think is real going into the future. And so I'm here because of something I didn't like. Or we are here because we know what we believe the Bible to teach. And we feel like we are doing it consistently. And we want to help build a vision that supports a Christian life that is real and that's something that God can bless. And that is the motivating factor that pushes us forward to create a culture that's consistent with Bible truth. And if we are in number three, then we've made deliberate choices to be here. We can identify with 1 Peter chapter 1 with that lively hope, that relationship with God, that purification process that comes through obedience to truth. This is no accident if you are in number three. I believe that too many times we're tempted to make bad choices today because of bad things that happened yesterday. And I continue to build on those bad choices, and pretty soon I know more about what I don't want to be than what I really should be. And so it's hard for me to answer this or to give, to define the statement, why I do this. And then you add up all the challenges that can come to me as a person and as a church from our culture, our national climate around us, and it can be confusing. And I can find myself, instead of defining to someone why I do this, I'm asking the question, why do I do this? And if your answer is based only on culture and the comfort of just doing what you feel is comfortable, you're in trouble. We are in trouble. You know, the people, you and I, and those of us who sit in the pews of our churches must have a better answer to that than just what is comfortable. Joe Weaver said years ago, and I never forgot it, and he said that God is much more concerned about our character than our comfort. And that's, that's true. And that's why so often I have hard times in my life because I get those two reversed, and pretty soon I find myself making decisions because I'm more concerned about my comfort than my character. First Peter here in chapter 1 and, verse, and chapter 2 must be a part of our lives. We must be able to identify with this lively hope, this relationship with God that is at the center of who I am, and because of that I'm making deliberate choices, and that's why I do this. Begotten us again unto a lively hope, a relationship with God that is alive and producing results. Kept by what? Our culture? No. It says, by the power of God through faith unto salvation and from obedience to obedience we create habits that define culture. Wherein we greatly rejoice, not grudgingly agree, we greatly rejoice that the power should light a fire for conviction to obedience and trust in my life that is evident to those around us. Remember, as we are purified by the obedience of Jesus Christ in obeying truth, it reaches out to a love of the brethren, and it's hard to have that love of the brethren unless they can see into our lives and know who we are. And so it's evident to them how real this process is in my life. Through the Spirit, to the brethren, 
Not grudging submission, but a love that is submissive to Jesus Christ and the obedience to truth through the Spirit to the brethren. To maintain purification and obedience, I believe that there's two elements here for success. And one is relationship and accountability on a personal level with Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. And as we have that, it reaches out to a relationship and accountability on a brotherhood level. It's all included in a life of obedience to truth. We would like to divide this too often. We would like to give testimony to the fact that I have relationship and accountability with Jesus Christ, but somehow I have a hard time letting that reach out to the people around me, to brethren that I can trust. The Holy Spirit in our lives navigates both relationships and expects both. My thought, and you can disagree with me, but I, I feel like that you cannot have relationship without accountability. In every relationship that you have, there's an expectation that comes with that. Otherwise, there's no relationship. That's partly what creates a relationship is the expectation of something that is reciprocal with whoever you're having that relationship with. And so I don't see how it's possible to have relationship without accountability. How would you like, if you are married here, if your spouse, if you had a relationship, a marriage relationship with no accountability? You can say, well, this is what I really would like to see, but there's no, we, I won't hold you accountable to this. How would that work? In every relationship, I believe there is some level of accountability. And the more we want to achieve from a relationship, the more accountability there is to see to that expectation. You know, we have a relationship with God. We expect certain things from God because he tells us this is what we can expect. We expect love and forgiveness and strength, divine strength from God in a relationship with him. Why? Because he's promised that to us. And he expects love and obedience and trust from us, an expectation that brings accountability. Let's go to Jeremiah 35. And as we think about that accountability and the expectation and the responsibility we have to produce results with obedience... I'm going to think about the Rechabites here for a little bit, and this is a familiar chapter, probably familiar people to all of us. I'm not going to read it all, but I want to, to think about what is really at the core of this account here with the Rechabites. And maybe you can help me. Jeremiah 35, verse 1, it says, And the word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go unto the house of the Rechabites and and speak unto them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Now somebody tell me, why did he tell the prophet this? Tell me. Joseph. Okay. What else? What was it about the Rechabites that God could do this for them? So let's look here. Um, he says in verse 6, this was their response. But they said, We will drink no wine, for Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, our father commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons, forever. Neither shall ye build houses, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyards, nor have any. But all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Now, this is why God was using these people, and he wanted to illustrate something. He wanted to illustrate how Judah was being disobedient 
to him, and he said, now look at these people. For I believe, if I've got it right, over 200 years that these, this tribe was obedient to their father. And when he said, don't drink any wine, don't build houses, don't farm the land, but live as strangers. And that's here, it's significant to me that at the end of verse 7, he says, where ye may be strangers in the land. They were in the land where ye may be strangers. This was the reason for these applications that their father made for this tribe, for this family. And now let's go down here to verse 14. The words of Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine or are performed. For unto this day they drink none, but obey their father's commandment. Notwithstanding, I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye hearken not unto me. So here God is contrasting through the prophet the disobedience of Judah to the obedience of the tribe of, of Rechab. And then let's go over here to verse 17. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the evil that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken unto them, but they have not heard. And I have called unto them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said unto the house of the Rechabites, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because ye have obeyed the commandment of Jehonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according unto all that he hath commanded you. Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jehonadab the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand, be, stand before me forever. Forever. Now, there's a lot in this in this account that I don't, I don't necessarily understand. But there's the, the, the core here, I believe, that God is driving to, forward to, the, to, the, to Judah was their disobedience. He said, I have talked and I have told you and I have told you, and you continue to disobey. So he said, I'm going to bring this tribe in here, and I'm going to show you what obedience really looks like. And there's a couple things that stand out to me. He doesn't necessarily uh, highlight so much that the, the, the rules that this father made for his tribe, not to live. But yet he blessed that application because he blessed their obedience. Now, do you think that if the tribe of the Rechabites here had decided that we're going to do all these things, but in doing these things and living in the desert, they would have lived in sin and they would have fallen away from God. <clears throat> do you think that God would have blessed this tribe? No. So we can deduct from that that God blessed the applications that Jehonadab made here because it produced obedience. And in producing obedience, God brought this tribe forward and said, look at these people. Look at the example of obedience. And what really stood out was how they obeyed the applications their father had made way back here. And it produced obedience. And God could use that as an example of obedience to a disobedient Judah. God didn't tell Judah that, okay, since these people were so successful in obedience, that you need to go out and live as nomads in the desert. And you need to do all these one, two, three, three four things necessarily. But he did bring forward the results of an applicable life that brought forth obedience. And in doing that, he not only blessed the obedience, but he blessed the method as well. 
So if this father, Jehonadab, he had the privilege here to see this bigger vision of obedience. And in doing that, in, in the best he could, as an earthly father, he set forward some perimeters that he thought would maintain obedience, and it worked. And by doing that, he propelled his influence forward for two or three hundred years. I believe that we, we need to understand that God expects nonetheless from us as his people that as we think about obedience and truth and how it should look right here in our generation, he expects us to step forward and make applications that will support truth. God blessed the Rechabites' applications to be strangers in the land when he blessed their obedience, when he used them as an example. And the bigger vision here of obedience, these people knew why they were doing it. In all these years, they not only did what their father told them, they remembered why they did it. It didn't take them long here to tell the prophet why I do this, because I want to be a stranger in the land. This is what our father told us. This is why I do it. Obedience is what he wanted from Judah. He, didn't, he wasn't necessarily trying to make Rechabites out of, the, out of the people of Judah, but he was saying, you need to achieve this, this level of obedience with me and what I am telling you as the Rechabites have with their father. That's what I want to see, obedience. What would have happened if Jehonadab had not made these applications that we could say were maybe unorthodox you could you could debate these applications but at the end of the day they produced an obedient generation from generation to generation for over 200 years the ability of Jehonadad to make application to a bigger vision helped to propel his influence and to to build an obedience factor in the next couple of generations living in tents not drinking wine and become and not be farmers or till the dirt that was the things that he put forward and it produced an obedient lifestyle. Now, we could fall in the other ditch and say, well, since that worked for them, let's grab a hold of these things and let's, let's make an identity out of this. Let's take this and let's put this in our generation and let's make an identity out of it. And we could still miss obedience if we're not careful. But we need to be like Jehonadab and be able to see a vision for obedience and make applications that propel our influence and then that vision forward in obedience through generations that go beyond us. Be separate from the nations around them. They never forgot why they were doing this. Even in this, in this lifestyle of being nomads in the desert, they never forgot the reason we do this is because we want to be strangers from the people around us. Be separate. They continued to remember the reason. Their heart was behind the application, and it created a culture. It made something out of these people. It set them out. It set them out here by themselves, but that was not the first and number one intent of the decisions they made. The reason that they did this was, first of all, because they wanted to be obedient. Jehonadab wanted to be obedient, he wanted to bring his people out, he wanted to be separate from the world, and he wanted to obey God. And so he made these applications that created this culture out in the desert. Their heart was behind the application, 
we can ask ourselves the same question. If men and families had not had personal convictions in your past, in my past, if they had not seen a bigger vision and done their best at their point, at their point in time to make applications that would propel obedience in the next generation, where would you and I be? It's important that as we move forward that we understand why I do this. Because I can continue to do and to do and to do, but if I finally find my identity in just what I do in practical life and I don't understand there's a direct connection between what I do and truth and obedience, then I'm, not, I'm going to lose the vision. It seems like too often we want the privileges of our culture without the accountability. We want a relationship with God but not accountability with brothers. We want the good cooking, the wealth of hard work, the bounties of good stewardship, the fellowship of clean entertainment, and the image of being good neighbors. But we don't want the authority of the word of God through the brotherhood to speak into my life. We want the privileges. We want the benefits. But we'd sure like to miss out on the accountability. We want the credentials without the requirements. We want the Holy Spirit to work in my life but surely not through my brothers. You know, we want this Holy Spirit to work directly with me, to give me some, some re, uh, revelation of what I should do. But we're offended when a brother comes to me and the Holy Spirit works through him and tells me what I should do through my brother. You know, we cannot have brotherhood without understood applications unless we have men with personal convictions, first of all. We cannot continue to support biblical church applications if no one has convictions for a vision. <clears throat> this vision will not continue to exist without personal convictions and, and, and a vision from you and I. The brotherhood is, is not any stronger collectively than we are as individuals. Now you can say, well, surely if I'm weak in this area, two brothers can make up the gap. Maybe for a time, but how long will that work? If we're going to succeed, we must blend our convictions in brotherhood agreements and we must come out from the national culture that we live in and be something separate, be something different because there's something different in here. That lively hope, that relationship with God is real in my life and I want to be separate. And so I'm willing to make sacrifice and do things intentionally to make sure that this vision can exist in my life and in the brotherhood that I'm a part of. If we're going to do this, then we need to make sure that we understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. We need to make sure that it's tied to truth. And if there's, a, there's a direct link to the Bible that I can say, this is why I do this. You know, just doing, application alone does not seem to be enough to pass on principle. Although we need the doing of it, because if we don't do it, we sure won't pass it on. But there must be a teaching with the doing that, is, that connects to the word of God. You know, Harry Argo says that knowledge trains the mind and standards train the heart, and I believe that's true on a personal level, and it's true in our families, and it's true in our brotherhood, that knowledge trains my mind, but it's the habits that I create through obedience that finally train my heart, and we must have both of them. We're running out of time. I need to keep moving, but applications must be backed up with a teaching, a consistent teaching to why I do this so that I can say, 
this is why I do this. There must be teaching on every level for principles. So what can we do? Very quickly to wrap this up, number one, we must have a systematic way to teach doctrine. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontless between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. It's an organized teaching process that goes forward that's a part of all of our lives. And I believe that's something that I need to grow in personally is to have a systematic way to teach doctrine. A, a, instead of just depending on, well, uh, let's see, I, ha I, I have this inspiration, let's teach this. I think we need to be more systematic about how we teach the things that we really believe to be right, to make sure that they're getting taught. Number two, build personal conviction for truth. I think that's, that's something that all of us as fathers and especially leaders, whether you're a father or whether you're not married, uh, wherever you are, whatever part you are playing in the brotherhood, you need to continually work on building convictions for the truth that you believe to be right. Number three, we need to justify our applications with truth. Now, that sounds a little bit weak, doesn't it? Justify. We use this word justify in kind of a, a slippery term sometimes. But what I mean by that is to prove or to show to be just, right, and reasonable to qualify. So we need to qualify. We need to, to prove what we do with the word of God and the doctrine we believe to be right. Make sure that we justify our applications with truth. Number four, set personal goals to not only support but defend our brotherhood and its agreements. You know, we often tell ourselves maybe and, and people in our churches that, well, you don't have to agree with everything in our church, but you need to support it. I, I think that's right, but I'll tell you something that for me, I've been thinking about that and how much of that concept can we embrace as individuals in our church and still continue to maintain what we believe if I don't really agree but I support I think that the least I can do is support for sure but how many how many men how many fathers can we have in our churches that their testimony is well I don't really agree but I'll support it how long can we continue to put forward a life and culture of obedience if that's the only level that we have? You know, we need to justify what we do with truth, first of all, and then we need to embrace it. If it is anchored into truth, then I not only need to support it, but I need to defend it. And maybe I need to work more on, on developing and maturing my thought process and my belief to where I really can say that I defend it. In our day of affluence and many voices and trends of Christianity, we must not only support but defend the gospel and our brotherhood and the applications we believe to be right. And then I believe another crucial point to, to continuing to thrive as a Christian people in our nation is that we need to be willing to testify what I believe to be right. A large part of our faithfulness will depend on how much we witness and share with the unbeliever. 
This is not only a privilege and a responsibility I have as a Christian, but I believe it ties more directly to my existence as a Christian than what I probably really believe. We think that, well, since I'm a Christian, I need to be a witness to my neighbors because they need the Lord. And that's true. They need the Lord. But I need to witness to my neighbors because it's a crucial part of my relationship with God and, and continue to thrive in an obedient life. I believe that the level of our witness and reaching out to our neighbors is going to, to have a lot to do with my spiritual temperature in my relationship with God. How long can we as a, a Christian culture and individuals in this culture continue to thrive in a relationship with God if we don't spend time telling our neighbors what God has done for us? I believe that when we fail on this point, that it makes for a sick and unhealthy spiritual generation. When we get our focus off of witnessing, sharing our testimony and beliefs with the lost, then we start to focus on the inside. We start to look in, and the quality of our witness and the quality of my relationship with God starts to suffer. Why I do this? I hope we can say this morning that the Holy Spirit is leading my life and your life in an obedience to God's word. That we want to be a Christian and to be an active member of a biblical church and to support, embrace, and defend what it believes to be right. That God is leading me to be a part of a brotherhood where I want to support and defend the applications and work with my brotherhood because I believe this to be consistent with the word of God. I hope that we can find ourselves there and we can thrive in that element as we work together with brothers in love and obedience to truth that purifies my life and makes me something that God can use in his kingdom today. Let's kneel for prayer.